This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here at Asia Torah, overlooking the Temple Mount in the Holy City of Jerusalem. So today's class is, how do we know this isn't a bunch of malarkey? You know, people are very fragile. We are, we are basically meaning-making machines. Human beings like to make meaning out of stuff. Um, that's just the way we are. Because deep down we all realize everything's totally meaningless, and that's uh, and so if everything's meaningless, so like why don't I just like jump off a bridge, you know, like wait, if everything's meaningless. But deep down we all realize that things are truly meaningless, and and you should know meaninglessness is the key to enlightenment. Meaninglessness. I know a lot of you are thinking like meaninglessness is a good reason to jump off a bridge. And, but meaninglessness actually is one of the keys to enlightenment because what happens when you drop all your meaning, the suchness of the subject suddenly comes alive. You understand? Like you can make a lot of meaning about me, for example. I got these, you know, the, the uh, I don't even know what you call these, horns or something, you know. When I do heads, when I do handstands, they're horns, you know. So the, uh, you know, I've got my cosmic dental floss hanging off the sides, you know. I, it's... You can make a lot of me. The outfits, like, you know, I got the fiddler on the roof thing going. You know, it's the new style. So the, you can make a lot of stories up and a lot of meaning about that, but you would totally miss me. You get that? You'd miss me. You get caught up in the, in the icing or the packaging and miss me. And it would all be your meaning making that would get in the way. So meaninglessness actually is the key to enlightenment. It's also the key to deep depression. <laughs> So, so, like, things get very real when they're meaningless. Like, suddenly the apple tastes like something like you've never experienced before. Because usually you don't eat an apple. You're actually eating the, you're eating the history of apples in every time you've ever had an apple. And that's what you eat. You're, I doubt you taste your apple past the second bite. Maybe the first bite kind of attacks your taste buds. And you're like, oh, what a nice apple. But a few bites later, you're eating, you're eating this, a story about an apple that you're eating. You're not eating the actual apple. And the same thing with your father. How many of us are stuck in some crazy meaning that we've made around our father and your mother? All the meaning you make around your mother. You know, and we got all this meaning, you know, it makes us when we answer our phone, we're like, we're like, hello. Oh, oh yeah, mom. Yeah, terrible timing. Yeah, I can't, I can't speak now. No, I'm sorry. And then you're back to texting random people. Yeah. So in the, we, are, we are always making meaning of things, but when you stop making all that meaning and you look at this woman called your mother, you're just blown away, and, at the, and even with all her faults. And you see this man called your father. It's the key to enlightenment is to let go of meaning, but it's also the key to depression because if everything's meaningless, so then so what are we living for? What's life all about? What's, what's the point? What are we doing here? And so what happens with most people is to stay happy is they, they give meaning to things. Some people make meaning out of water skiing. Some people make meaning out of culinary, you know, food prep. Some people make meaning out of art, music. Some people make meaning out of money. A lot of people are into that, you know, but boy, is that a lost cause. You know, I've finally, I've, I've come, and maybe I'm being reactionary, but I've finally decided that, and no offense if you're watching this and you're fabulously wealthy, but I've decided that I no longer like fabulously wealthy people. <laughs> I mean, you're going to have to do a lot to impress me if you're fabulously wealthy. Because I'm just tired of picking up the pieces. Picking up the pieces of their marriages and the pieces of their children and the pieces of their, 
of their, you know, just that the incredible trail of destruction that fabulously wealthy people leave in their in their wake, and they and they just think they can somehow paint a dollar sign over all the issues, and it it does not work for children, and it does not work for spouses, and I have to pick up all those pieces, and so I'm frankly unimpressed. So they're they're going to have to do a lot to impress me from now on, and I and I just. I, and I, I don't want anything to do with them, you know. And I, I, I'm happy to love them as human beings, but that's it. And they're going to be loved as any other human being and nothing more. I don't want anything from them. And, you know, one of them wants to get smart and start helping the world with their resources. No problem. Go for it. But, uh, but I, I mean, I'd, I just had a guy recently... He says, we got to speak, Rabbi. I really need you. I really need you. So we get together, and he says, yeah, I, I, was, I was up $2 million in a week, and I bet it all and lost it. And, and he starts crying, and then he's like, wants me to hold him. <laughs> and I'm like, the minimum amount of charity that someone who makes $2 million is... Two hundred thousand dollars. It's ten percent. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Two hundred. You know how much two hundred thousand. You know how many people two hundred thousand dollars feeds. So why didn't he just take off the ten percent for the poor mm-hmm. before you? You want to let it ride? Let it ride. But don't start betting poor people's money. Don't start betting with poor people's money. And that's why I said I, he was crying. I was not nice. I was like, you know, you want me to sympathize with you, but I'm really sympathizing with the poor. Who, because who, you could have fed a lot of people with that two hundred thousand dollars, and now there's nothing. There's nothing, and you bet their money, you put their money on the table, and lost it. This is what, this is the kind of stuff I'm talking. I'm just giving you another example. Is that is that it's just I, I'm not into it. You know, you want to take responsibility for your money and and start helping the world. Great, but most aren't doing that. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous. But I'm on a rant. Let's get back to our class. Our class is that we make meaning out of stuff. That was just the chapter on making meaning out of money. We make meaning out of looks. We make meaning out of body weight. We make meaning out of, out of, uh, out of clothing and, and cosmetics. And, you know, and all these things are things that people have, have allowed to become very meaningful. Because they don't want to get depressed. And I understand that. That's fine. I also don't want to be depressed. So people have made meaning out of stuff. But one of the biggest platitudes in all of the world of meaning-making is religion. Religion is one of the big, big meaning-makers. I mean, that, that works for the masses. You realize that's not just you figuring out that you really think, I don't know, Swiss watches are, are like you want to have a collection and that's going to be meaningful to you. Religion is like an overarching meaning that humanity has been into has been has been making and so that's why this class is titled how do we know that this isn't just a bunch of malarkey how do we know that judaism for example is not just a bunch of meaning making you know it works make meaning out of it and and it's judaism and it's boy has it got a lot of meaning i mean everything's meaningful in judaism i mean you haven't even gotten out of bed and we already are we got things we say as soon as we wake up you know uh we, i washed my hands this morning, not having even stood on the floor yet, meaning, meaning I just leaned over and, you know, we have a nice bucket set up right next to our, our in our bedroom and, and there it was waiting for me and 
I washed my hands. Um, I read in the Rambam actually that that uh, that uh, that one of the things that a wife does for her husband and washes his hands, his feet, and his face. And so I was thinking, well, that's a little primitive, isn't that? Like, how many women wash their husbands? Hands, feet, and face. So we learn one-on-one, and so I said to my chavrus, has your wife ever washed your hands, feet, and face? And he said, no. And he's like, yours? I'm like, no. And I'm like, well, what is this? He said, well, I guess traditionally, you know, a woman washed her husband's hands, feet, and face. And I'm like, okay, so let's make a contest. Whoever can first get his wife to wash his hands, feet, and face wins. And he's like, okay, you're on. So I've, I wasn't going to waste any time. You know, I love competition. So the first mor- next morning, I wake up. And I wake up, and there's the bucket. And I'm like, you know, it's all ready for me to wash my hands. And I just kind of look over at my wife, and I'm like, would you be willing to wash my hands, please? And she's like, no problem. And she grabs the cup, and I got my hands in there, in the bucket. And she's washing my hands. And I'm like, thank you. Like, you wouldn't wash my feet, would you? <laughs> My wife's like, what? <laughs> you have to understand, my wife's from a full feminist background. You know, like when when she came to when she came to Tel Aviv University, she was her, it was a potential goal of hers was to become a reform rabbi. Okay, you know, reform rabbi. I think have, it's like I think they have like male genitals actually. So like, she, she wanted to be a reform rabbi. Like, this is she is a hardcore feminist background. You know, she said it took her 10 years from the day she became observant, it took her 10 years to stop hugging the mechitza at weddings and actually to start dancing with the women. Yeah? So it took her, meaning when you go to Jewish weddings, the dancing's separate. There's a big wall down the middle dividing the two, the men and the women's side. And what happens is all the women with feminist background or have been infected by feminism will be watching the men dance because some, for some reason watching men dance is somehow better. I don't know why. <laughs> why watching someone dance is better than dancing, I'll never figure out. But they, but there's always these girls glued to the mechitza. Now, th- some of them may be single, so they have an excuse. Okay? The single girls glued to the mechitza have every right to be glued to the mechitza. But, uh, but not everyone's married, and not everyone's eligible to be married. And go dance with the women! And stop coming to Asia Torah classes to have male teachers and men all everywhere and stuff. You know, like, like go to Neve or whatever those schools are called out there and celebrate femininity. Anyway, but it took my wife, fully observe, observant, meaning, meaning full immersion in the, in the Hasidic world. It took her, she said it took her 10 years to pry her fingers off that mechitza and start dancing with her sisters. Just, these are my sisters. And I'm dancing with my sisters. And she never looked back. She never looked back. She celebrates women. That's it. And it's quite, quite something. And, and today when we have third meal, it gets packed. It wasn't packed this week, so we all sat together. But when it's packed, we separate the men and the women. And she, she's happy. Just give me a room full of women to have third meal with. It's perfect. Now, um, yes, yeah, so I said, do you mind washing my feet? And she was like, huh? And I'm like, would you wash my feet? And she's like, uh, I mean, I should probably warm it up. You know, because you're not going to want cold water on your feet. And I'm like, okay, I'm here. <laughs> and I just laid back down, you know, waiting for her to bring the bucket. And uh, so she brings an empty bucket. 
warm water towel on the arm in the forearm you know and I I sit down on the edge of my bed and put my feet in the bucket and she washed my feet and I have to tell you something it was really pleasurable just having warm water on my feet you know first thing like the first thing that touched my feet that day was just warm water and she patted them dry and it was very nice and anyway when we were done with that I'm like would you be willing to wash my face she's like I'm going to wash your face? And I'm like, if you would. And anyway, so, so she went and got a, got a, ta- you know, a hand towel and got it warmed up with water and, and washed my face. And then, and then she walked out of the room, probably the happiest I've ever seen her, which was amazing. So happy. She was just so very happy. And and then I just grabbed my phone off the windowsill and I was like, I win! <laughs> Shot a quick WhatsApp with the words, I win. And to this day, he still hasn't done it, which is, I don't know why he hasn't. I guess because I won, he never tried it. But um, I'll, I'll try to impress upon him to try it because it was a wonderful thing. And by the way, I'd be happy to do it for my wife as well. But Judaism has a lot of meaning. Even from the second we wake up to the wa- our washing our hands, which shoe we tie first, things we're thinking about throughout the day, and and um, the way we spend the day, it's it's got everything's quite dictated and and quite meaningful. And there's nothing arbitrary to it. I mean, it gets pretty intense. Meaning, if you take let's say the Torah commandments, for example. So you'll notice that the Torah commandments, how many commandments are there in the Torah? There's 613 commandments, okay? So I apologize that online this is going to come out backwards. But uh, it's 613 commandments in the Torah. And now, does the Torah explain any of the 613 commandments, how to actually do the commandments? Does it explain it? No. Does it explain any of them? Does it explain one of them? And the answer is no, not one. Does the Torah is create high stakes for fulfilling the commandments? Is it high stakes? What do you think? High stakes? Yeah. High stakes. Like, for example, eating bread during the week of Passover. High stakes or low stakes? High stakes. High stakes. Does the Torah go into what could constitute bread? Nothing. Nothing. Not even a word. And... Uh, and uh, how about the high stakes of keeping Shabbat? High stakes or low stakes on keeping the Sabbath? High stakes or low stakes? High stakes. Any explanation whatsoever there? Nothing. Zero. No, no, no explanation. Uh, the only thing it tells you there is don't do something called malacha with zero explanation of what that means. And then there's positive commandments like wearing tefillin. Pretty important commandment for men. We also got the tzitzis, the strings. Any explanation in the Torah of what that is? No. So how many laws are there in the Torah? How many laws altogether in the Torah? No, not 613. These are 613 hyperlinks. There are 613 hyperlinks. You click on these hyperlinks. You click on them. They take you to a whole different website. And on that website, you have what's called the... Um, you know what, let's put it like this, actually. We'll put it below. you got the 613. 
Yeah, and then we'll call that Sinai. You know, the Sinai six thirteen sounds like a, some kind of Jeep rally in the desert. The Sinai six thirteen, and uh, it's like the Baja five hundred, and the Bahav uh, deal. And then you've got from the six thirteen. So there you got the written law. I'll do another pictorial here. This is the written law. Okay, that's the Torah. And from the Sinai 6.13, you have, from there, you have the written law. And we still, to this day, it's all written down for all of history. But, um, but actually, there's a whole other aspect of it, which is the oral law. So I'll make a picture of a rabbi here. I don't know how to draw rabbis. Uh, I guess he needs a kippah. You know what? We'll give him a strimal. Okay. And we'll give him some payas. We'll give him a little beard. Okay. How am I doing? Does that work? So you have the written law, and then you have the oral law. And the oral law, we're going to get rid of his beard. The oral law breaks down to two. And one is the law, and then the other is called the Kabbalah. How's my, how's my writing? Does that look like Kabbalah to you all? Yeah? I can flip the camera, I guess. Okay, we'll just make this a little easier for everybody. So... Otherwise, it's backwards on the screen. So you got the you got the written law, the the oral law, and then you got the Kabbalah. And these arrows are history. That's world history. Now, the written law of the Torah—that's the actual five books of Moses plus the prophets. You know the what's what we call the Tanakh Torah. Nevi'im is the prophets, and Ketuvim, which is the writings. That's King David, King Solomon, you know, the Megillahs. Those are all part of the writings, okay? Now, nowhere in the Torah does it explain how to do any of the commandments. There's no explanation whatsoever. That explanation is going to be given by the rabbis who kept it oral all the years. Now, it was kept oral really for only a thousand years, because after about a thousand years, um, the nation of Israel was attacked by the Romans. And so when the Romans attacked, um, I'll put in Romans here. Romans. And uh, I just want to add the word bastards, if you don't mind. So we're going to call them the Roman bastards. Romans. If you're not Jewish, you don't have to use the word bastards. But everyone else in the room, every time you say Roman you say bastards, okay? Now, the reason we do this is because, you know how, like, there's a very low tolerance for, um, there's very low tolerance today, let's say, for Nazism. That's, would you say the world's not very tolerant of that? In some, some places are getting more tolerant, but it's in general Nazism, Hitler, all that stuff. Uh, that's considered, you're allowed to say bastards after that? The Nazi, those Nazi bastards, right? Yeah? You're allowed to say that? Well, there were other holocausts, and some were at, had higher costs than the holocaust. Meaning the holocaust had a major human life cost, but we had others. 
that were massive. And one of those was the Roman, the Roman uh, destruction. And it wasn't just the human cost. We lost our temple. We lost. That's why if you look out this window, you'll see the ruins of our temple. You'll see instead of the court of 71 judges, you'll see, the, um, you'll see instead today the Al-Aqsa Mosque, where you know, 80,000 Muslims put their butts up to the Holy of Holies while they face south towards Mecca. That ain't cool. That ain't cool. And, and, and certainly, you know, I'm not necessarily shooting fireworks on Jerusalem Day because I work every day here. You know, okay, if I worked in Tel Aviv, I'd celebrate Jerusalem Day because what do I... It's so out of thought, out of mind, the fact that we're in this situation, but I have to stare at that every day. It's not, it's not the wisdom of, of Torah for the planet to, you know, from Jerusalem sending out its wisdom into the world from that court. The, the, this great, you know, these 71 judges who knew every language of all men, of all humankind. You couldn't judge a case in translation. You had to know every language. They knew the language of animals and birds. They knew every bit of sorcery. They knew every bit of witchcraft and uh, black magic and everything because they had to try cases and they had to understand everything about them. All the occult they knew. They knew all of Torah. They knew all that wisdom. They knew all the Kabbalah. They were the holiest, most special people that maybe walked the f- planet. And, the, and so what happened was the Romans caused a huge, huge uh, loss of life, and a, and a, and, but also a net, one of the biggest hits our nation's ever taken in history. Now, of course, Jews sit through history classes all throughout the world, whether you, know, you could be at Boston University, you could be in high school, you could be anywhere. And you're sitting in these classes, and... If I were a professor of history and we're doing the Roman era, I would say, um, anyone Jewish in the classroom is welcome to leave for the next 10 days because I, I, it would be an insult for you to have to take an exam on, you know, on your, your murderers, mm-hmm. on the people who sent you into a 2,000-year uh, trail of tears. It, I, I'm not expecting you to be examined on that. And I don't think you need to know this stuff or at least be given any, any favorable vi- version of them, of the Romans. And for that reason, but, you, but in the observant community, we have a very long memory. You see, the re- regular Western society has a very short memory. And when's the last time anyone thought about the kids in the cave in Thailand? You know, like, the, they're out, by the way. But, but how many of you really remember that a day or two later? You know, and, and there are actual politicians who count on that. You know, we had a time where, in Israel, we had a time where we had more liberal prime ministers. And you know what they used to do? They, they didn't like terrorism, but they kind of used it to, to kind of champion our cause by like, you know, meaning if, God forbid, a bus blew up in Tel Aviv, they would kind of, I don't know, the, the prime minister would kind of put blood on himself, so to speak, and say, see, see what we're dealing with. And then came along... A guy by the name of uh, what was that guy? He's kind of radical prime minister we had. He di- he passed away recently. What was the name of that guy? He gave away uh, Gaza to the. He re- he removed the Jews from Gaza. What was his name? Ariel Sharon. Yeah, Ariel Sharon said enough bus bombings. Like we're going into Arab neighborhoods where the bombs are being made. 
And he started with a town called Janine, which was a hotbed of terrorism. And he said, we're, we're going we're gonna to whoop the terrorists in their neighborhood. We're not, the, the nations don't care about our, the blood on our arms from our, the terrorist attacks in the cities of Israel. The reason all of you, t- if you had been here, I was teaching right here, standing right here, teaching classes to a room full of people just like you, and no one had taken a bus on their entire trip to Israel. Can you imagine being in Israel? You, no bus, no train, no public transportation whatsoever, avoiding crowds as much as you could. That's the way we, everyone was living in those days. Sharon put an end to all this, and you know what he counted on? He counted on the short-term memory of Western Civ. Because after he mowed down the town of Janine, which the UN, of course, sent in their people to go see the massacre, which, which was put in the 20th page of most newspapers, that there was no massacre, it was a pinpointed attack of only terrorist elements of Janine. And in fact, I think out of like all the people killed, I think there wasn't more than two civilian casualties in what they called the massacre. But what Sharon counted on was that it won't stay in the news for more than a few days. And he was right. It didn't stay in the news for more than a few days. And you want to know something amazing? We're now about, mm, that was 2003. What's 2018? That was about 15 years ago. And guess what? Never went back to the news. Do you think Israel changed their way of dealing with terrorism by letting it go back on our streets? What do you say? Simple question. Do you ride buses? Do you take the bus in Israel? Yeah, of course you take the bus. And the reason you take the bus is because Sharon knew that when he does that, it's going to be international news that he went into their neighborhood to deal with terrorism and created an entirely new policy as prime minister, knowing that the media will lose this story within a few days. And now we're 15 years later with the same exact tactic to fight terrorism. And that's why you're enjoying your trip to Israel, because people are not enjoying their, their stay here. Back then, we were here. It was very purposeful. It was deeply meaningful. But it was not fun to be here in Israel at, at that point. Now it's fun to be here as well. Now, the, uh, anyway, the Romans, and so what happened was they wrote down the oral law in a book called the Mishnah. And then the Kabbalah was written down in a book called the Zohar. Now, Judaism offers an intense amount of meaning. Why? Because for every one of the 613 commandments, there is a ton of explanation how to get the job done. Like, for example, the word malacha, keeping Shabbat, the word is called malacha. We have a book that's this thick on my shelf called the 39 malachas. Turns out there's 39 malachas. We have a book this thick on our shelf called the 39 malachas. And it goes through all the different types of things that you do not do on the Sabbath, that you're forbidden to do on the Sabbath. So the laws, we actually counted the laws. you know how many laws there are? In other words, there's 613 hyperlinks. Do you know how many laws there are? So leave it to Asia to actually count them. Someone at Asia Tor counted all the laws. You know how many laws there are? 55,000. 55,000. Now, I have a question for you. This is going to be for people a little more advanced in Judaism. And the question is, do you think even one of those laws is arbitrary? Of the 55,000 laws, would you say that all 55,000 has uh, a reason or it's arbitrary? What do you say, reason or arbitrary? You bet it's got a reason. Every single law has a reason. Now, let's just take a random law. 
Uh, okay, we mentioned tefillin. Those are the black boxes. Have you seen my Indian friends? Have you seen some people wearing black boxes on their heads? Yeah. And it's on the arm and the head. So the um, so the those black boxes. It's called the mitzvah is called tefillin, and and the Torah again says nothing about it. There are hundreds and hundreds of laws how to make that box. What goes into making that thing? And there's stuff inside. There's there's parchment inside with written parts of the Torah, and hundreds of laws are involved. Did you know there's more laws in there's more laws in that one commandment than all the world's religions put together? All the world's religions put together, there are more laws in that one of the six thirteen, and it pales in comparison with the one commandment of Shabbat, which is to not do malacha. That has like all the world's religions rules times each other, multiplied, not added, multiplied. And you will not get to the amount of laws there are just in our Shabbat. Now, the, but let's just take the tefillin. One of the laws of the thousands of, or hundreds of laws in tefillin is that, that when you put the box on your head, it should not go below your hairline. So people with receding hairlines have to have a good memory where their hairline was. But, they, but you can't let the box go below your hairline. And in fact, when I pray, and especially after I get a haircut, where my head's a, the diameter is just a little thinner because I just got my haircut. So during the prayers, you know, especially when I start doing the penguin thing, you know, I start really bobbing and stuff and could slide a bit. So what I do while I'm praying is I actually will feel for a couple of hair follicles. I just want to feel a little hair. Just make sure it didn't dip. Because if it dips, it doesn't work. It doesn't work if it dips. Okay, got the law? What's the law? Above the hairline. hairline. That's the law. Got to be above the hairline. Okay. Sounds arbitrary? Sounds pretty arbitrary. Do you think it's arbitrary? It ain't arbitrary at all. You click on those words, keep the tefillin above the hairline. Well, where are you going from there? The Mishnah said above the hairline. Okay? Now, i got to click on the words above the hairline. Where am I going from there? Well, now we're going to the Kabbalah. Because the Kabbalah is the mysticism. It's the mystical reason. What's going on above the hairline? What do you got going on above your hairline? There's something going on up there. What? You know what's above your hairline? Well, excellent. you got the prefrontal cortex, which is where all your neurons are. That's where you compute everything. There's something else right up there, and that is the soft spot on a baby's head. That's where the three parts of the skull, um, you know, when a baby comes through the birth canal, the skull folds in on its tr- itself. It's a three-part uh, three bone structure that they all fold during the birthing, and that's why the baby looks a little scrunched up when he comes out. But then those three lobes of the, uh, those three uh, parts of the skull go to their proper places, quite fluid. But then there, you'll feel on a baby's head that for the first few months, it's soft there, and you have to be extra careful there because that's right over there, right, right over there, uh, there uh, what do you call that area, the prefrontal cortex? There's another term for it? Anterior fontanel. Yeah, anterior fontanel? Yeah, fontanel. Oh, the fontanel, yeah. Anterior Hey, you're good. Are you a doctor? Yep. <laughs> you know why? Because I happen to know the name fontanel. You know why I love that name? Because the, the last two letters of the name, yeah, Fontanel, is the name of God. And the first two words, fountain, the fountain of God. 
Okay. Right. So the anterior fontanelle is the frontal fountain of God, because the word, the, the last syllable of fontanelle is the name God, and fountain, the fountain of God. So we have to have that tefillin on the fountain of God. It's got to be on the fountain of God. Now, what's underneath the fountain of God? What's right under there? What's under there is the neurons. That's where you have billions of neurons. What kind of doctor are you, by the way? I'm training to be an orthopedic surgeon. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Okay, great. And, uh, and, so, uh, and that's a tremendous, uh, a tremendous kindness, that field. It probably causes, probably some of the most suffering in the world. And so you, if you have the chance to alleviate all those people's suffering. Yeah? Wow. Yeah. Amazing. So keep up the good work. Now, the... Anyway, so your neurons, ready for this? All those neurons, those billions of neurons, they're atheists. That's right, neurons are atheists. They're atheists. All they do is take, they take stimulated, they're stimulated. Like right now, they're being stimulated by, by audio vibration. Am I speaking English right now? Yes or no? Yes. No. I'm sending out vibrations. Okay, like for example, let's just say this is an A on my guitar. So this is 440 oscillations per second. Now I'm breaking up those 440 oscillations with my lips, teeth, tongue, and, and um, guttural and palate. Via you know the five exits of the mouth, which are connected to the five letters called the Menatz Pach, the final letters of Hebrew are the Mem, Nun, Tzadik, Pei, and Chaf. Those five letters have a have a final form. They're called the Menatz Pach, and they're connected to the five exits of the mouth because uh, God created the world via speech and via these twenty-two letters. And the finals are the channels. The final letters are the channels of the speech. And the but really all you're getting is vibrations. They're shooting across the room. No English. I have not spoken a word of English. They're shooting across the room. My, the vibrations are hitting a tympanic membrane in your ear. So it's like there's a little monkey playing drums over there. Really fast beats. And all that math is shooting up these uh, oral um, nerves, which go to the neurons. The neurons now are getting the real math. They're getting all the math. And that math's coming in like super, super high level of calculation. And what they do, there's one other thing your neurons do, is they connect to memory. And what happens is, if you've ever heard English before, so they're going to match it to that English. Because truth is, neurons don't understand the math. Your neurons, right now your neurons, all they're doing is just getting like, they're like, boo, bee, boom, bee, bing, bang, bang, bang. You know, they're just like, ding, 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 ding. They don't understand what that means. However... They are connected to every time you've ever heard the word car, for example. They're connected to, to memory, and they take things you remember, and they, you know, quickly translate, very quickly, translate the, the math, and we call that English. And this is all going on in real time. And, and by the way, the reason why we love music so much, why music's so spiritual, is because it's slow. It's the speed of sound and the human brain kind of digs that. We, we dig that groove. Whereas sight is coming much faster. Sight's coming at the speed of light. And so you won't have a spiritual experience with sight that you'll have with sound. So sight, and, and I don't know the speed of smell, 
But I find smell to be pretty spiritual too. And sight is, sight, you kind of have to make that mental move. You know how you ever been on a hike, but you, you weren't really there, you were still kind of in the city? You know what I mean? You didn't make, you have to make that mental move. Whereas music, no mental move necessary. It's the right speed for our experience of spirit, you know, the spirit and the sounds of the music. So we do really well with, with sound. It's, a, it's the right speed for us. And uh, anyway, your neurons are atheists. All they do is take stimulation. They are just stimulated by sight, sound, touch, smell, taste. That's what they do. And what we do is we take a box that has God in it, meaning it's got Shema Yisrael, the fact that there's, that there's really only God, that all there really is is God, and this is all just a digital matrix we're living in. This is purely a digital world you're in. This is a simulation, a digital simulation you're living inside of. And your neurons are there to compute all that simulation to give you a sense of, you know, that you're here. And we put this box on our head right over the fontanelle, the fountain of God, every morning. And I pity the foo who only puts on his in the afternoon, because a lot of teenagers will like sleep all day, and they'll put it on like right before sundown. So they miss their day because, well, they were asleep anyway, but they, but you want it on the morning to like start your day with the oneness of God, and you say Shema while you're, while you're wearing it. You say the words that are inside the box. Now, an amazing question that we can handle quickly is why don't, why don't women have this commandment? Why are the men doing this and not the women? So what's the beautiful answer that says a lot about women? Yeah, <laughs> she said it well. Say that loud. They are already connected. They are already connected. That women are already connected. Well, what made women already? Who's, that's nice, you know, that sounds cool. But why? Why are women already connected? And so the answer is a deep mystical teaching that is a universal mystical teaching, whether you're an Israel, or you're a Navajo Indian in, in North America, or you're a Hindu in India, no matter where you are from, you have this teaching. And that teaching is that the entire creation is either causal or receiver. Cause, receive, cause, receive. Cause is called masculine, receive is called feminine. The entire creation is just cause and receive, cause and receive. That's all there is. <coughs> And so as a man, I have to receive sometimes. So human beings are unique because we have to play both roles. Sometimes I'm just receiving. And sometimes I'm really causing. And when I'm causing, like for now, I'm teaching a class. That's going to be my male side. So if one of you women got up here to teach this class, so that would be your male side. But then there will be a part of me receiving. Like, for example, if I speak to my parents tonight and they're going to pour on some love. So I'm going to put on my female hat and just be the receiver of their, their love for me. And that will be a receiving experience. Or it could be my wife will serve me dinner tonight and I will receive that food in the feminine mode and she will be causing in the masculine mode because she was in there you know, asserting herself all over our kitchen. And now she's asserting this food in front of me. And, and now I'm going to be receiving that food, which is my feminine state, to receive that. And perhaps maybe I'll clear the dishes to, so that she can receive something and she can just sit there and talk to the kids while I 
and putting dishes in the kitchen. And so now I'm, and now I'm causing something to happen. And now she's receiving. And this is why the union of male and female is both a cause and a receive. It's a cause and a receive at the same time, and that's the ultimate union is of male and female. But every single thing is either cause or receive. There's nothing else. Everything is male and female. There's nothing besides that. Um, you're probably wondering why, what I mean by that, but you'll notice that the light bulb has a burning filament inside. I don't want to look at that. But it, that's causing something. But it's got a bulb that receives it to give it a vessel for that. The um, I have a bottle of... I cleanse on Sundays. I do a cleanse. So I've got this like crazy concoction in here of uh, stuff that's just like... You know, it's ultimate... Every kind of ultimate raw food. Because I'm, I'm into being very healthy. And But on the other hand, I'm this Ashkenazi... European Shabbos food eater. So what, what do I do? I enjoy my Shabbos food, and then I cleanse on Sundays. So I'm in cleanse mode. And the uh, anyway, but that stuff's you know it's kind of liquid. <laughs> I'm just going to paint the whole bottle black here, but the it's kind of liquid. But the bottle is the feminine. The bottle's holding it. That's holding. It's a receiver. You get that. Everything's doing this. The window is the masculine. The frame of the window is the feminine. The door is on hinges. It's got handles. My button's on my vest. The, your table's locked into the frames. They're, every single thing in all of creation is male and female. There is nothing else. There is nothing else. Well, therefore, females who are born female are born receivers. And males who are born male are born to cause. Well, what do you think God's referred to? Causal or receiver? Causal. God is a causer because, because the creation is actually being created. Oh, thank you so much. That's okay. So, would you be willing to pour me a cup of water? So, the... This stuff. It's killing me today. Like, I'm, I'm like, for every cup I have to go to the bathroom for an hour. And the, the, uh, they overdid it this time, you know, where I ordered this one. I can't, the problem is it's got like 36 ingredients, and I can't, I can't, no, we make often, but today, today I just ordered one. Thank you so much. Oh, too, how did you know? Anyway, God's causing creation to exist. Men who are more naturally causers are in a conflict with God because we're both causers. Women are not in that conflict. And the commandments that men do that are unique to men, for example, the tzitzis, tefillin, praying in a group, those are all to get us to settle down. I mean, notice I'm strapping myself down. I mean... I'm literally like binding myself. It's bondage. I'm binding myself down with these leather straps because I'm making, I'm getting that masculine energy of mine to mellow out and receive that God is causing and I'm a receiver. That's the way it works. And that whereas women are built naturally to receive and therefore their relationship with God comes much more naturally to them. 
Now, of course, we're 75 years into feminism, and so maybe women should be wearing tefillin, and they should be wearing tzitzis. Now, I highly doubt it's the ones who are doing it, meaning the ones who are actually wearing tzitzis and putting on tefillin, I don't think they're doing it for the right reasons, necessarily. I think they're probably doing it more for almost politically. But the uh, but a woman who has found herself, like the mechitza huggers we were talking about before, the ones who prefer male rabbis teaching them, and, and you know, they like Asia Torah more than the women's sim. So it, maybe it's not such a bad idea to maybe privately wear sitsis. I wouldn't wear them out because then you're, it'll cause you to... You know, ego will come up to... It'll be egotistical things. But, but it might be worth putting on tefillin if you're a female who's more of a male at this point of her evolution in 2018. You know, maybe tefillin is appropriate. But, uh, but I don't know. Just don't let anyone know you're doing that, including me, please. I have enough images in my mind. I don't have to have an image of you and tefillin in my head. So the, um, anyway, but that's cause or receiver, and that's why, why they have that. Now, you understand that I have been talking about tefillin now for about 50, 20 minutes, let's say. How long did it take me to say above the hairline? How long did that take me? No. Above the hairline took about uh, half a second above the hairline. Okay? So watch this. Torah says the word totafot. That's the term in the Torah for tefillin. Click on the word totafot because I don't know what that is. And I get over here to the law that's hundreds of laws about things. And I took one of those laws, and that is that you should place it above the hairline. Not even half a second. Half a second. But then we click on the word above the hairline, and you realize we got in a long discussion about that. Now, do you think that the Zohar and other Kabbalistic works have more to say about above the hairline than we handled in the last 20 minutes? What do you think? Yeah. A lot more. Now, I've got a question for you. If there are 55,000 laws of how to keep the 613, how much detail do you think there is in the mystical part of the oral law. It's mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. A mind-boggling amount of detail. Now, next question. How do we know this isn't a bunch of malarkey? That would be a really long class to continue on with. But I want to share with you something intuitive. And let's see if you guys can get this. This is going to go to the heart of your intuition. And the answer is, how could it not be? Sorry, not how could it not be malarkey, meaning how could it not be real? How's it going? Oh, it's after four. Yeah. You're going to be standing if you're walking in here. I don't mind if you stand. I'm just at my closing statement. The question is, how do we know that this is true? And my answer to you is, how could it not be? How could it not be true? 
How could how could these thousands and thousands and thousands of myriads of details, whether it be the how tos or it has to do with the why, because this is really what, this is what, the law is what, and the Kabbalah is why. You get how we talked about why we put it above the hairline? That was why. So if we've got thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of laws on what, and therefore we're going to go into hundreds of thousands of details on why, how can it not be true? Do you understand my question? Like, <laughs> didn't somebody thousands of years ago have something better to do than give us this as our little, uh, as a little gift? You know, thank you for Judaism. It's like, do you mind carrying this grand piano? Like, wh- how could it not be true? And we're only going in on one tiny, minute, seemingly random detail of one little word in the Torah. And there's words that are much more expansive than totafot. And it's just... And there's 613 of these babies. How can it not be true? How could you expect anyone to keep it if it wasn't verifiable? It has to be verifiable. Because no one would ever keep it. It is so completely cognitively dissonant to ever keep all the Torah. It has to be provably true. It has to be provably ruled real just by intuition because uh, this massive compendium of information which the Torah clearly says is binding and comes with great consequence as well how can it not be real how can God not be real how can the oral law not be real how can the Torah not be real and what kind of book tells you you have to do all these things but doesn't explain even one of them so therefore the Masorah the actual tradition the oral tradition has to also be Real because there's not ex- even one explanation of how to do a single thing in the Torah. Not one explanation. Therefore, it leaves us with this sense that, oh my gosh, like, it's too big to be fake. It's too big to be false. It's got to be real. Shalom, everybody. Thank you. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.